Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 11. We're going to finish what we started last week on our study of the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Grieving family learns to trust was the title last week, so we'll stick with that same title, A Grieving Family Learns to Trust, part two. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 16, John chapter 11. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus saying, He whom thou lovest is sick. And Jesus and his disciples were about 25 miles away, a distance that would involve a whole day's travel. And Jesus delayed their coming for two days. By the time they got back, Lazarus was dead. The lesson emphasized in last week's passage was that God's timing is always perfect. And I hope you've seen that in your own life, even this week. And as you wait, he's teaching patience, he's teaching us how to pray. Whether we understand it or not, God is never late, he's never wrong, he always does what's best, and so he can always be trusted. And the intent uh, in this chapter, in this miracle, is that uh, people would believe and that God would be glorified. There's an initial belief in Christ, we mentioned that last week, a belief in him for salvation, and then there's also... The word pistuo in the Greek is also to trust. And as we grow in our faith with the Lord, he wants us to grow in our trust, to trust him more. So salvation is the beginning of the life of the believer, and true faith continues to grow as we trust him every day. Well, let's start with the setting in verses 17 and 19. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. We start with the sadness that's felt at the home of Mary and Martha. They've already placed their brother Lazarus in a tomb. Many Jewish friends had made the journey from Jerusalem, and I think that's why John gives this distance of 15 furlongs, less than two miles We can understand how a large number of friends in the Jewish community would have been there to show their sympathy and their comfort to these two sisters. Funerals are observed differently around the world. They're observed differently here in the United States. In the South, it was different than it is here in the North. On January 1st of this year, one of our missionaries to Brazil, Lynn Decker, went home to be with the Lord. Because of the tropical climate there, funerals and burials are scheduled within 48 hours of the death. Friends and family there usually send floral arrangements that are large shields or discs that are placed on on greenery, and they're, they're held up with a metal stand, but everybody sends that, and then there's a ribbon across that diagonally that tells who it's from and some words of, of consolation for the family. The timing here is similar to what took place Uh, in the New Testament, as far as Brazil goes. In Israel, bodies were not embalmed. Burials usually took place the same day as the death. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias lied that he gave the entire sale price of some property that he owned to the the Lord, and Peter said, you haven't lied to to me, but to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the land. The amount didn't matter. The lie did And when Ananias heard those words, it says that he died on the spot. He was wound up, carried out, buried. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened to her husband. She also lied about the price of the land that they sold, and she also died on the spot. And the young men carried her out and buried her by her husband. 
In the New Testament, for burial, the body was washed, anointed with perfume, wrapped in linen strips of cloth. The process of grieving or mourning usually continued all week after the burial. Friends would visit the family. Uh, Sharing in the sorrow involved uh, loud and emotional demonstrations of sorrow, of weeping. In fact, professional mourners were often hired for the task. They would weep at the home and then also en route to the grave. And that's what the Bible describes when Jairus' daughter died. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. And we see the mourning at her funeral through the eyes of two gospel writers. Matthew says it this way, Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. So there was some kind of musical noise going on. Mark says, he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. So there is, uh, this was just the normal way of showing their sorrow, their grief. The burial was often in a natural cave or in a tomb cut in the side of a cliff. Some caves were large enough to bury several people. Among the Hebrews, the location plots usually centered around family. That's the way it was in in Abraham when he was buried with Sarah in that case. Jesus interacted with this grieving family, Mary and Martha, so they would learn to trust him and grow in their faith. Let's look at his challenge to Martha, first of all. And this challenge that he has for her is for a greater faith. Verses 20 through 27, Jesus challenged Martha to greater faith. It's always the desire of the Lord to strengthen our faith. When he and the disciples arrived in Bethany, he met Martha first. Martha Martha is the the busy sister. We learn a lot about their personalities in Luke chapter 10. It says that uh, when they entered into a certain village, a certain woman named Martha received them into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Do you know that feeling? (laughs) And then she said, Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. That one needful thing, spending time with the Lord, worshiping him, letting him know that you love him. Now some people generally will relate to one or the other of these two ladies. You may be industrious, you might like to get things done, or you may like to just spend your time alone with the Lord. Now here's what we need to learn from that, from the two personalities, instead of taking sides. If you're like Martha, don't get impatient and say, Those Mary types are just lazy. If you're like Mary, don't criticize the Martha types and say, you're just not as spiritual as I am. Try to find a balance between between duty and devotion. Serve the Lord out of love. And so let's take both of the good qualities of these two ladies, Mary and Martha. Well, Martha limited her faith with doubt. 
verses 20 through 22. And in this section, we'll see those personalities on display right at the outset in verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Her doubts are seen in the words in verse 21. Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. She was limiting his power, his omnipotence, to his presence. As if to say, where were you when we needed you? I've heard that question asked by Christians trying to, trying to get a reason for the, the tragedies that they face in life. Jesus didn't have to be present to heal Lazarus. The nobleman's son in John 4 was 25 miles away. He, Cana to Capernaum was the distance there. And it's interesting, it's the distance that we have in this story here, from Bethany to Bethabara. But Jesus said to him, go thy way, thy son liveth. Martha limited his power to her own understanding of how God could work. Here's a woman filled with uncertainty. Her grief gave her boldness to verbalize those doubts that she had. If only you'd been here, you could have prevented this death. But she was seeing things from her perspective and couldn't see things from Christ's perspective. Do you ever limit what God can do in your own life? Maybe because you didn't think he was there for you? You know, he's, he's, he's omnipresent. He's always there. He knows you. He cares about you. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. With God, all things are possible. These are truths that we know. But Martha limited her faith with doubt. Notice her faith that's seen in verse 22. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She could have, you know, Jesus could have prevented the death and she really believed that. And so she argues herself back to the fact that he could help even now. And she says that. Even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Do you have a faith that doubts? <laughs> One Thanksgiving, Helen Hayes announced that she was going to cook her first turkey. She told her husband Charles and their son James that this would be her first attempt, and if anything went wrong, she didn't want to hear them say a word. They would just get up from the table, and they would go out to a restaurant and have their Thanksgiving dinner there. When she came in from the kitchen carrying that turkey, she found her husband and her son both seated at the table wearing their hats and coats. <laughs> That's a faith that doubts. It's often easy to fall into, isn't it? Oh, I, I, I believe, Lord. We sing, even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all. Just continue to trust. Argue yourself back to the place where you know what God, is, what God can do. Um, Jesus brought Martha back to what she knew and believed. 
And so the best thing to do in any time of uncertainty and in any time of doubt is to remember those absolute truths, those promises that are in God's word. Christ's words of comfort in verse 23, Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. This is a promise of certainty. These are the words of comfort for Christians today. Those who die in Christ shall rise again. This is not the end. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. There's life after death. There's a resurrection. How does Martha respond? Verse 24. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Her present sorrow, the grief that she was going through right now, blinded her mind to the future certainties. I know he'll be resurrected in the end, but what about now? We're going through a difficult, grieving process. You know, we do the same thing. We reason from our own understanding of the events that take place in our lives. We get so nearsighted that we don't see what God might be doing Matthew Henry puts it this way, Thus, by our discontent under present crosses, we greatly undervalue our future hope and put a slight upon them as if not worth regarding. We have the claim of Christ in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he turned to Martha and said, Believest thou this? Don't you believe that? When Jesus used the words, I am, he's saying that he always has been the resurrection and life, always will be, and always is. It's always in the present tense, no matter what, what, where your timeline is. He is. This is the truth of him. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And then he says, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me. Now, liveth may indicate that, that place where you are living. If you are living, that's the time to put your faith and trust in Christ. Those who are dead will never have that opportunity again. You cannot pray a person out of purgatory. This is something, a decision that needs to be made while you are living. It could mean that. It could mean that you have that spiritual life, not just physical, but you're living and believing at the same time. You're living in me, you're believing in me. And if you do, here's the promise, shall never die. That's eternal life. And then that personal question, Mary, well, Martha, do you believe this? And Martha's faith is strengthened as he argues her back to what she already knows. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And the questions Jesus asked Martha, brought her to a place where she made this strong and clear testimony of her faith. Sounds a lot like Peter's testimony of faith in Matthew 16, 15 and 16. Jesus, again, asking something so that they would respond. And he says, whom say that I am? Whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a testimony of faith. Make sure that your testimony of faith is heard by someone. Your church, your family, your neighbors, uh, 
Don't leave people wondering if you're saved or not. If you've repented of your sins and accepted Christ and his free gift of salvation, tell others and let your life back it up. Are you like Martha? Are you looking at the circumstances from your own perspective? Do you say, I believe with great conviction when you're around others at church and then in those midnight hours have a heart that's filled with doubts? might be good to pray the, pray the prayer of the father recorded in Mark 9:24. He had a son who couldn't hear or speak. He often tried to kill himself by throwing, him into, throwing himself into the fire or into the water. And Jesus said to the man, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Pray that prayer. We come now to Mary, and Jesus comforts her with sympathy in verses 28 through 37. Martha's news in verse 28, and she had, uh, when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, and it's secretly, uh, under, under the, the conversations, the music, the singing, the grieving that was going on in the, in the home, secretly saying, the, ma- the master is come and calleth for thee. Back in Luke 10:40, Martha wanted Mary to leave Christ and help her with the serving of the, of the meal. Now she wants Mary to come to Christ. Mary's response, verses 29 to 32. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews, when they... Uh, which were there in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Apparently something that the two sisters had talked about. In verse 33, we see Mary weeping. She wasn't ashamed of that sorrow. She wasn't worried about what others thought about her emotions. We need to be more like Mary. Jesus wants us to come to him with our deepest sorrows. Don't be ashamed of it. She responded immediately when he called. Verse 29, she arose quickly and came to him. When Jesus calls you, don't hesitate. Hurry to him. Don't let anything or anyone keep you from coming to Christ. Mary was misunderstood by those mourners. They had come with her. And the lesson there, don't let what other people think keep you from coming to Christ. The Jews were there to comfort the sisters. Two times we see the word in verses 19 and 31. John is using a word here that means that they tried to console her. They tried to encourage them. Their intentions were good. But when you need comfort, you need to come for the one who can comfort. There's a great joy in remembering that you have had comfort from Christ when you go to comfort someone else in sorrow. But remember that Jesus is the the one who comforted you. And don't put it on your shoulders that you have to provide comfort for them. Take them to Christ. Let him comfort them. Encourage them with what Christ can do. 
Mary fell at his feet. Matthew Henry says, she fell at his feet as one submitting to his will in what was done. Here again we find Mary where she often is, where she was before at the feet of Jesus. We see now the compassion of Christ for her, verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. What a fascinating thought to see the emotions of our Savior. The words mean that he became agitated within himself. F.F. Bruce says the word regularly indicates displeasure of some kind. And he wept. And people have often said, why did he weep? And they have given different answers of why he wept. First know that this word that's used for Jesus weeping is a different word that was used from Mary and the Jews. They were wailing. It was customary at funerals. Kliao, to cry aloud. Christ is a different word. It just means to shed tears. Tears running down his face. Why? Well, he was moved because the text already said he loved Lazarus. He was moved for sympathy for Mary and Martha, whom he also loved. He was moved because of the unbelief of those around him. He was moved because of the enemy of death and sin's consequences. Are there times in your life where you're shedding tears? Where you're going through a crucible of testing? Are you grieving over something that you know God could have changed, but decided not to. In his divine wisdom, he decided to work a different way. You can still find comfort and consolation when you come as Mary came. Kneel at his feet. Surrender your sorrows. He will weep with you. And you'll find perfect rest and sympathy in Christ. There's one other individual in the story in verse 38 to 40. Jesus called Lazarus back to this life. We often wonder, did he want to come back? (laughs) (laughs) Look at the instructions that Jesus gives in verse 38 through 40. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave, and it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, and the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. And that's the key in this whole passage. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And she still didn't know what was happening. Jesus got others involved in this by telling them to take away the stone. Why did he do that? He may have done it to show firsthand that this was indeed a miracle. It wasn't some sort of trick. He may have been asking others so that they would have a part in this miracle. I'm sure they would tell their children for for years and years what they had seen. We were there. We rolled the stone away. We saw it. We heard what happened. 
He may have used them to increase their faith, I'm sure. As they participated in this stone rolling, they wondered what would happen next. And when it did, that would increase their faith. Look at his prayer in verses 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast seen me. He spoke words in the form of a prayer. Not because he's asking the Father to do something that he himself cannot do, but so that people would see the importance of prayer. He's certain that God has heard even before Lazarus was raised. I thank thee that thou hast heard me. He's certain that God always hears. The reason for prayer is given that they may believe that thou hast sent me. The intent for them is that they would believe that he is the Son of God. Now we come to the resurrection in 43 and 44. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin, where there is a, is a cloth, a towel. It was a sweat cloth that was used. The original word comes from sweat cloth. It wasn't like a napkin you'd use at a table. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Some say Jesus called Lazarus by name because if he hadn't, all that were in the graves would come forth. <laughs> there may have been other men named Lazarus. The miracle was instantaneous. They had rolled the stone away. As Jesus prayed, there stood the tomb open, dark, quiet. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice. And that was when the dead came forth. One day there's going to be another loud cry. Calls every believer out of the grave. The body will be raised and changed to unite with the spirit, his spirit that's already with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 tells us that. And the shout may be from Christ here or from the archangel or another angel, but the, there will be a, a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's going to call your name. Are you ready? Again, those present were called to assist. Loose him and let him go. And again, God wants man to, to take part in his work. Here's Lazarus, alive, but wound about with all these strips of grave clothes. And God has called each one of us to a certain task in this life. Let's remember, he's the only one who can give life. He is the resurrection and the life. He receives the glory for changing lives. But we are asked to help loose the grave clothes. How can we do that? We do it by seeing men in their need. Believers and unbelievers alike. By weeping over them with compassion. By praying for the lost to be saved and for uh, believers to have their faith strengthened. By obeying God and fulfilling the great commission. 
You may be facing trials that have brought you to a place where you wonder what God is doing. It may be that you're facing that trial to strengthen your faith, like Martha. Use that trial as a platform for your statement of faith. Let others know your faith in Christ. It may be that God wants you to come to him for comfort, fall at his feet like Mary in submission and trust. It may be that God wants to be glorified as he was with Lazarus by doing what seems impossible. If you look down in verses 45 and 46, you'll see the results. There are good and bad results. Many of the Jews believed on him, verse 45. In verse 46, some went their way to the Pharisees. They were going to tell what happened. God wants his grace and his glory to be evident in all of the trials. And he wants you through those trials to have a stronger faith and to testify of the grace and the power of God to others who don't know him as their savior. Let's continue living for him. Let's continue serving him and trusting him and seeing what great things God will do. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for understanding us in the sorrows that we face. We know that you know the end from the beginning. Help us to trust you with that end. Help us to realize that you do all things well, that you care, that you're able to help. And I pray that we would go from this place with a greater faith and trust in the one who understands. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.